You may uh, be seated. This time uh, the kids are dismissed uh, to Children's Church this morning. Take your Bibles, if you would, and open up to Acts. Uh, We're going to be in Acts chapter uh, 14 this morning, and we'll be reading verses 1 uh, through 18. Acts chapter uh, 14. Now at Iconium, they entered into the Jewish synagogue and spoke in such a way that a great number of Jews and Gentiles believed. But the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against brother, the brothers. So they remained for a long time speaking boldly for the Lord, who bore witness to the word of his grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. But the people of the city were divided. Some sided with the Jews and some with the apostles. When an attempt was made by both Gentiles and Jews with the rulers to mistreat them and to stone them, they learned of it and fled to Lystra and Derbe, the cities of Lyconia, and to their surrounding countries. And there they continued to preach the gospel. Now at Lystra, there was a man sitting who could not use his feet. He was crippled from birth and never walked. He listened to Paul speaking. And Paul, looking intently at him and seeing that he had faith to be made well, he said in a loud voice, stand upright on your feet. And he sprang up and began walking. And when the crowd saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices, saying in Lyconian, the gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Barnabas they called Zeus and Paul Hermes because he was the chief speaker. And the priests of Zeus, whose temple was at the entrance of the city, uh, brought oxen and garland to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifices with the sacrifice with the crowd. But when the apostles Barnabas and Saul heard of it, they tore their garments and rushed out into the crowds, crying out, men. Why are you doing these things? We are also men of like nature with you. And we bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to the living God who made the heaven and the earth and the seas and all that is in them. In past generations, he allowed the nations to walk in their own ways. And yet he did not leave himself without witness, for he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. Even with these words, they scarcely restrained the people from offering sacrifice to them. Let's begin with a word of prayer this morning. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, Lord, uh, we come before you today and we we just ask that you would uh, use your word in our midst. We believe that your word is inerrant. It is the truth without error. And so, Lord, we pray that you would give me the words to say you have something for each one of us in this message today because it's your word, because it's what you have determined to give us. And so, Lord, we pray that your words would be heard for your honor uh, and your glory In your precious name. We pray. Amen. Our scripture reading this morning was from first Samuel, chapter two. And 1 Samuel chapter 2 is the prayer of Hannah, a mother. And it's Mother's Day. 
You'll remember the story of Hannah, how she was crying out at the tabernacle and she was crying out for a child in 1 Samuel chapter 1. And the Lord hears that prayer and and grants that to her. And chapter 2, verses 1 through 11, is her prayer or her song of praise to the Lord. She gives all the credit to God for everything in her life. She acknowledges the greatness of God, that God raises people up and brings people down. She says these words in in 1 Samuel chapter 2, verses 2 and 3. There is none holy like the Lord. There is no there is no one besides you. There is no rock like our God. Talk no more so very proudly. Let not arrogance come from your mouth, for the Lord is a God of knowledge. By him actions are weighed. What's most important about Hannah and her life is her godliness. She humbled herself before the Lord. When the Lord answered her prayer, she did not boast in herself. She gave thanks to the Lord. She prayed prayers that we see throughout the Psalms and, and, or, or the language of her prayer is language that we see throughout the Psalms or even in the book of Deuteronomy that there is no one like the Lord, no one holy like Him, no one besides Him, no, no one at His level or near Him. There are no other gods. There is no rock like Him. It's a picture we find throughout the Scriptures of this immovable one, this one who we can ground our life in. And then she says, talk no more very proudly. Let not arrogance come from your mouth. What makes Hannah a great mom is she was humble. She was a believer and believers are humble. This morning, we're in a passage of Scripture that deals with the necessity of humility, or we see humility demonstrated in the disciples. And so our main point this morning is, in humility, turn to God. Paul and Barnabas call their audiences to turn to God. But it takes humility, and they demonstrate humility. When you turn to God, you are humbling yourself. You are saying, God, I need you. You are the rock. There is no one like you. And you make yourself very low. Like Hannah says, talk not anymore so very proudly. Do not speak in arrogance. Pride and the Christian life are antithetical. You cannot come before the Lord in in genuine repentance and and be clinging to pride and be speaking boastfully. In humility, turn to God. So, we have two points this morning. The first one is that the Gospel brings humility into the disciples of Jesus. Genuine disciples, those who follow the Lord, should be, on on a regular basis, those who manifest humility. This is not to say we will never stumble with pride. We all stumble with various sins. But it is to say that the pattern of life that should be emerging from your life and my life is one of great humility. The greater God is to you, 
the greater you acknowledge Him to be that great God, or the more you acknowledge Him to be that great God, the more you are putting yourself in a position of humility. A position of, I am a nobody. I am lowly. The Gospel brings humility into the disciples of Jesus. So, we have the disciples actually being successful in their ministry. Look at verse 1. Now at Iconium, they entered together into the Jewish synagogue and spoke in such a way that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. So notice here that that their ministry of the gospel continues. And it continues with a measure of success that the Lord is bringing to them. They are speaking persuasively about the Word of God. They are speaking in such a way that the Lord is using it and finding it compelling. Let me just highlight for you a statement from our own church doctrinal statement. Article 19, we have the evangelistic mission of the church. And we say this, God has clearly revealed the gospel in the gospel, the only way of salvation sufficient and applicable to the whole lost race of mankind based on his infinite and perfect love and his expressed desire that all men be saved. He bids that the church with urgency, compassion and persuasion proclaim the gospel to all people and invite them to believe we are to be urgent in our sharing of the gospel. We are to have compassion. We have not only a passion to share the gospel, but compassion for those to whom we are sharing it, that they need this message, that this is a matter of life and death. And there is nothing wrong with seeking in a godly way to be persuasive, to lay out the scriptures in a way that is consistent, to invite people to believe these things, to to describe the great need and the great solution in such a way that hopefully God will work and people will find it compelling. So we have the disciples. They spoke in such a way, Paul and Barnabas and those with them, they spoke in such a way that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. But second, I think notice that their ministry is effective, not just that their ministry is effective, but that God is bringing it to be effective. This goes back to last week when we looked at verse 38 of chapter 13. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life, believed that God must attend to his word, that God goes with it so that the word of God is effective when we speak it, not because of us, but because of God and his character. God calls people to salvation. Uh, in, in the scriptures, as we look at this, we try to categorize this in two ways. One, God uses human beings to call people to salvation, meaning you get out there, you share the word of God and you say to someone, believe this. You are called. Come before the Lord Jesus Christ and receive him. Turn and repent and believe. But God also uses the Holy Spirit in what we might call an inward call. Last week we looked at John chapter 6. I mentioned how God draws people. And without God drawing, it is impossible for anyone to come to faith. God works in the heart to bring someone. So if this message is effective, it is effective because God is at work. And I say, be on our guards here. 
The temptation behind ministry and church success can be a temptation for pride. Notice that God then testifies to His grace with signs in verse 3. And so they remained for a long time speaking boldly for the Lord who bore witness to the Word of His grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. So there remains then an equipping from the Lord. And, and in this context here, part of what God is doing is He is giving them the ability to do signs so that people might know that the Word is true. Someone comes into town and says, hey, we want you to believe this. And they are surrounded uh, by pagan temples. They are surrounded by false people and doing false miracles. And God uses the ministry and attends it with signs in the early church so that people might know that Jesus is real. But God gives the miracles. And in the same way, God gives the power to the ministry of the Word. Paul will say later on in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, he says, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, but, I, but by the grace of God, I am what I am, and His grace towards me was not in vain. But on the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. And so they are going and they are bearing witness to the word of His grace and the effectiveness of it and the miracles that attend with it are the work of God's grace. So that Paul and Barnabas can say, this isn't us. And Paul says, as I mentioned in 1 Corinthians, it wasn't me. First, spiritual growth and conversion is by the hand of God. When you plant a garden, you put seeds in the ground, and you faithfully water it, and you faithfully weed it, But that is no guarantee that the crops will come up. There there is something to gardening that is outside of your control. Not only could you have a giant rainstorm that washes out your garden, or you could have bugs attack it and they could eat all your plants, but just the very natural process of something growing is guided by God. You don't grow your garden. You can attend to it in faithfulness. You can add weed killers. You can add fertilizers. You can can do all the things necessary to cause it to grow and yet still have a lousy garden. We call it someone that lacks the green thumb. God brings the growth. And in the same way, you can share the gospel. You can minister. We can do preaching and Sunday school teaching and and all kinds of outreach. But God is the one that brings the growth. Whether it's people coming through conversion or, or other Christians finding our church, God causes it to happen. We need to pray. We need to pray that God would grow our body. That God would grow us. And I'm not just talking about numbers flocking in. I'm talking about 
real spiritual growth, whether it's by conversions or whether it's by people coming in or whether it's you who are already here who just needs to grow deeper in the Word of God and deeper in your faith and in your life and in your walk and discipleship. But God brings the growth. It will not be Pastor Tim's sermons. It will not be uh, the worship band's style. It will not be the wonderful Sunday school lessons and teaching that we do. God brings the growth. And so, second, while we should work hard for the cause of Christ, it is really the grace of God that is working in us. Notice as well, when things are going well, when they're having success in ministry, there are divisions that the gospel causes. Look at verse 2. But the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. Look at verse 4 and 5. But the people of the city were divided, some with the Jews and some with the apostles. When an attempt was made by the Gentiles and the Jews with their rulers to mistreat them and to stone them. And then it says how they left the city. But notice here, the successful gospel ministry came with trials and tribulations. And you might have this in your own life. You might be trying to to share the faith with someone. And it gets harder and harder. Or maybe you're trying to share the faith at work. And and there are some that are interested and there are some that, that just want to pick on you or make fun of you or tease you. And guess what? Sometimes that is the very thing that it attends or comes along with successful ministry. The question is, are you being faithful? God will bring the growth, but are you being faithful? Notice then in Lystra, the gospel continues and Paul actually heals a man. Look at verses 8, 9, and 10. Now at Lystra, there was a man sitting who could, uh, who could not use his feet. He was crippled from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul speaking and Paul looking intently at him and seeing that he had faith to be made well, said in a loud voice, stand upright on your feet. And he stood and began or he sprang up uh, and began walking. This is a continuation of the signs that we we saw just a a few verses earlier. Now we have a specific one. But notice the man is hearing the gospel and he responds by faith. Paul heals him because the man is putting his trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. Since we have here this phrase, seeing that he had that he had faith to be made well, it's really worth noting or, or pointing out that this is not like modern people today who claim to be faith healers. Paul saw that the man had faith and it was faith in Jesus Christ. And it was Jesus Christ through the apostle who had a special apostolic gift who healed him. It was Jesus who did the work. When Paul, with Paul, then there was genuine preaching of the gospel. Uh, faith healers today do not preach the gospel That salvation is found in faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone. Rather, they make the healing that you're going to get dependent upon your ability to believe. And if you don't get it, it's somehow your fault because your faith was not strong enough. Who does that put the credit on? If it doesn't happen, whose 
fault, is it? Not the sovereign will of God who might not desire healing in this instant. But it's you. You're the sinner. You didn't have enough faith. You didn't believe strong enough. That's not the way the Word of God works. That's not the way healing works in Scripture. Also today, as we're talking through the context here, faith healers tend to lack humility. That might be an understatement. Faith healers tend to lack the humility that we see in Paul and Barnabas. Send your money to me and and I will multiply your seed gift and you will become rich. Meanwhile, I will take that money and I will buy a giant air. Oh, I'm giving it all away now. Uh, Well, I'm going to have to cancel my airplane order this week. There is a lack of humility. It's about me and my ministry and what I can do. This is not the way Scripture portrays the Christian life. This is not the way Scripture portrays the faithful minister of the Gospel. Notice in Isaiah 29, verses 18 and 19, this is one of the passages that Jesus uses to defend His healing ministry. He makes an allusion to it when when He's talking to John the Baptist. He says, In Isaiah 29, in that day, the deaf shall hear the words of a book and out of gloom and darkness, the eyes of the blind shall see and the meek shall obtain fresh joy in the Lord and the poor among mankind shall exult in the Holy One of Israel. What we see today is not genuine humility that marks a genuine exalting or a lifting up of the Lord. We heap glory and praise upon the man and the ministry. True Christian character, true conversion is marked by humility. Look at uh, verses 11 through 13. Look at what happens. Okay, there is this amazing miracle. And and what do the crowds start saying? Uh, and, And by the way, you have to read this with just, you know, this this was like a mob. They they just came rushing out and were like, wow. When the crowd saw that Paul, what Paul had done, they lifted their voices saying in Lyconium, the gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. It is, this is amazing. Gods are here. Zeus and Hermes, those guys that we have, the temple right here by the gate, they are here. This, this is more than just, wow, what a ministry, these guys. This is, they are blaspheming. They are saying these idols that we've worshipped here is the, the living incarnation of them. Barnabas, they called Zeus and Paul Hermes because he was the chief speaker. I don't know if, if you were in their shoes, which one would you want to be? Would you want to be the one called Zeus? Did they think Barnabas had lightning? I don't think it went that far. But Hermes Hermes was the speaker in the ancient world for Zeus, so they, they named them appropriately. And it says in verse 13, And the priests of Zeus, who, whose temple was at the entrance of the city, brought oxen and garland to the gates, and they wanted to offer sacrifices to the crowd. This, by the way, is very similar to what happened in chapter 12 when Herod was sitting in his royal robes The sun was reflecting off the gold and the crowd. He was addressing the crowd and the people said, the voice of a God, not a man. And and Herod did not immediately rebuke it and he was struck dead. 
Herod got cocky. Maybe in his demeanor there was a little bit of, yep, 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 all right, they think I'm pretty good. You know, maybe even somewhere, well, you know, I know I'm not a god, but wow, they think, whew, look at what they think of me. Whatever it was, whatever was going on in Herod's mind, it was the exact opposite. Here, then, Paul and Barnabas rush out into the middle of the crowds and they, they start tearing their robes. Look at verse 14. And when the apostles Barnabas heard of it, they tore their garments and rushed out into the crowd crying out. We'll talk what they cried out in, in a few minutes, but, but just imagine how far they have humiliated themselves. How far they have gone to show that, that they are not gods. I like to wear bow ties on Sunday. I like bow ties. I wear them because I like them. People think both, some people, maybe you, I don't know, think bow ties look nice. It's hard to be humiliated when you wear a bow tie. You look sharp. But if somebody was going to say to me that, that I was a god, we would be taking off, I would be taking off my jacket, I would be pulling out the bow tie, I would be, I would be trying to do everything I could to show you that I was a normal human being. In, in the ancient world, when you want to get humble, you would, you would sit in sackcloths and ashes. You would, you would rend your garments. You would, you would tear them. You, you would be saying, I am the lowliest of the low. And, and it wasn't just enough for, for Paul and Barnabas to say, whoa, time out, guys. You, you know, um, I'm not a god. It wasn't enough to just calmly reason with them in this moment. Their, their humility was such and their understanding of, of how great God is and His Son Jesus is was such that they rent their garments. They were like uh, the king of Nineveh who hears from Jonah that they need to repent and he, he takes off his royal robes and he sits down in, in sackcloths and ashes. And this guy was a king. Here, Paul and Barnabas aren't even kings. They're just apostles. And yes, they were given the gifts to do some miracles, but, but when someone thought more of them than they should have right away, it was boom, hit the dirt. We are going to be humble. There are lots of kings in the Old Testament that get stuck up. Uh, I shared the example of Nebuchadnezzar a few weeks ago when we were looking at Herod. Another great one is the king of Tyre in Ezekiel 28. Listen to Ezekiel 28. Son of man, say to the prince of Tyre, Thus saith the Lord God, because your heart is proud and what you have said, and you have said, I am a God. I sit in the seat of gods in the heart of the seas. And yet you are but a man and no God, though you make your heart like the heart of a God. Ezekiel 28, verse 5. But your great wisdom in your trade, you have increased your wealth. Your heart has become proud in your wealth. Therefore, thus saith the Lord God, because you have the heart like a God, therefore I will bring foreigners upon you, the most ruthless of the nations, they shall draw their sword and the beauty of your wisdom and against the beauty of your wisdom and defile your splendor. There is this repeated theme in the Old Testament 
that those who are humble, the Lord will lift up in due time. Those who lift themselves up, the Lord will humble. Hannah knew that. And she was humble. And even at the end of that song, she is waiting for the Lord's anointed one. The one that He will lift up. It is blasphemy to think you are a God. And we like to look at that and say, oh, that's just the ancient world pastor. But the pride, the pride that King of Tyre had in his wisdom and his wealth and his power, that is something that we fall prey to even today. Scripture says in James 4, chapter 6, but God gives more grace. Therefore, it says God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Let me make three applications for this point this morning. When a person first, when a person claims to be a Christian, there will be a noticeable demonstration of humility. When a person claims to be a Christian, if it is real, there will be a noticeable demonstration of humility. I'm not saying they're all going to run out in sackcloth and ashes. But there will be a demonstration of humility. And when people praise them unduly, or, or even when they, people get carried away in praising them, they will shy away from that. They will calm people down. Let me give you an example. Right now, there is a man who is running for President of the United States. And he's been very vocal about being a Christian He's even bragged about it on a on a major even in a major evangelical university. And yet his attitude, his behavior, sometimes his campaign speeches, his visible life up to this point has not displayed humility. Quite the contrary, even to the point that that when one time he was being asked in an interview, if he ever asked God for forgiveness, he said something to the effect of, no, I don't think I ever have. I just don't think like that. I go on and try to make it right. There is no humility, no coming before the Lord of, yeah, I am a sinner. I am lowly. I am a nobody at the end of the day. Brothers and sisters, this is not about politics. This is to say, this is no behavior of a Christian. And we get swept up into that kind of mentality. As Americans, we need to be winners. We need to be great. No, we need to be humble. We need to humble ourselves before the Lord as Christians, at the end of the day, God is the rock. God is the infinite one. There is no one beside Him. And how dare I think that I can come into positions of power and positions of authority and positions of prominence and puff my chest and stick, up my, my, stick out my chest and think that I am a someone. Genuine Christians are marked by humility. Let me go a little farther and say, as a second application, we need to, to reject praise and exaltation from people. Now, I'm not saying that, that we, we should never receive a compliment. Uh, 
There are times where it is totally appropriate. Someone gives you a nice compliment, and you just say, you know what, thank you. Or maybe you say, you know, I, I don't deserve that, but, but thank you so much. We, we don't need to be showy in, in shooting down other people's compliments. But we need to be careful that when people are heaping us praise, when people are saying nice things about us, we don't get swept away into thinking that we are somebody. How easy would it have been for Paul and Barnabas to say, well, yes, guys, we aren't gods, but, you know, we do have a pretty big ministry here. Look at how successful we've been. Look at the miracles God is doing through us. And over time, that becomes, look at the miracles that God is doing through us. Which becomes, over time, look at me. This is the tendency of the human heart. And if you know yourself, this is the tendency of your heart. This is the tendency of my heart. To, to love when people praise me. To the point that, that it is so easy and tempting to become dependent upon praise. To, to the point that we get worried and bitter and concerned when we don't hear it. We need to be careful because the temptation comes that we start to think we deserve it. Your goal in life is not to worry about what people think of you. Your goal in life is to be concerned about what God thinks of you. Not to seek the praise of man, but to live in such a way that we hear from the Lord at the end of the age, well done, my good and faithful servant. And you will not hear those things if you go through life, if I go through life, puffing ourselves, exalting ourselves. Finally, success in ministry comes from the Lord and not from ourselves or our gifts. Pride is something we all need to fight against. I remember a time in Bible college. Uh, every year at Bible college, they would pick seniors to give kind of the, the senior preaching. They would pick guys in the pastoral ministry track. They would pick two or three, and they would have a, a, a chapel to do the sermon. And I remember when they picked the guys, and I remember how I felt when I wasn't one of them. I was discouraged. And not in a, not in a good way, in sort of a, man, I thought I was a better preacher. I should have had that. It was, a, it was, it was pride rearing its ugly head. Success is not about you. Scripture says this, thus says the Lord, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom, let not the mighty man boast in his might, but let him, uh, but let, let not the rich man boast in his riches. Let him who boasts, boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, righteous justice and righteousness in the earth. For in these I delight, declares the Lord. That's Jeremiah 9. Paul in 1 Corinthians 1.31. Let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. We need to be humble. That's what it means to be a disciple. Second, this morning, the gospel brings us to turn from our false gods. So not only are Paul and Barnabas humble here, they, they turn this into an opportunity to preach the gospel. One of my friends, um, Dan Allen, he's a pastor. Uh, if you ever go out to lunch with him, uh, make him pay. But if you ever go out to lunch with him, 
He will, he will often, you know, when the waitress comes up or the waiter comes up and they ask, how are you doing? He, he will often say, well, better than I deserve. And people will be like, oh, okay, whatever. Or, or sometimes I was with him one time and the waitress was like, oh, don't, don't say that. You know, like that sounds like so negative or, or you must not have strong self-esteem, I think was the implication. But then he always turns it into a sort of, well, do you know what I mean by that? And he, and he leads it into the gospel. What I'm illustrating there is there is, okay, on the one hand, it's maybe a cheesy line, but, but there is humility in that, in saying I am better than I deserve. And then using it to to share the gospel. Paul and Barnabas not only make a show, so to speak, of showing they are humble, but they're not doing it to to just attract attention to themselves. So that people go, wow, and these guys are humble, too. Isn't that neat? They, They are using it as an opportunity to to begin to share the gospel. So look at verse 15. Men, why are you doing these things? We also are men of a nature like you. And then he says, we bring you good news that you should turn from vain things. So idolatry is vanity. And in scripture, oftentimes idolatry and pride go hand in hand because you're you're exalting up something that is is not God. Uh, That takes a lot of chutzpah, right? To wow, this is this God that I made and I'm exalting it. Idolatry and pride go hand in hand in our hearts. Pride can become like an idol. We think we are better than ourselves. But notice the response that he says. He says this. And we bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God and who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. Response to the gospel is that you should turn to the living God. One of the things that I've been amazed of as we worked through Acts, you, you many of you know the history of the church few years before we came and some of the false teaching about what repentance was and wasn't and, and, and a denial that you need to repent and believe that Jesus is Lord to be saved. You just kind of have a faith that he's your savior was the idea. But I have been amazed in Acts how many times the issue of lordship, the issue of repentance and the issue of turning to God have come up. And I, I have not tried to like Let's find the book that will single these things out the most. I've just tried to preach what Scripture says. And in this, it says, you need to turn from these vain things. Get rid of your idols. If you're going to turn to God and repent, you have to also have a a forsaking of sin. An acknowledging of what it is. This is why you cannot claim that I'm coming before Jesus as my Lord and Savior and at the same time be consciously holding on to and exalting your own pride. It does not work. First Thessalonians 1 Thessalonians 1.9 For they themselves report concerning us of the reception we had among you, how you turn to God from idols to serve a living and true way. I mean, it, it really is basic geometry, right? If you are turning to something, you're also, by, by consequence, turning away from something. Um, this, is, this is not quantum physics where we can be somehow, I don't know how it works, but supposedly you can do two things at the same time. This is simple geometry. If you turn away from something, you are, or if you turn to something, you are turning away from something. Paul says to them, turn from these vain things. 
doesn't mean that the Thessalonians never sinned. It doesn't mean the Thessalonians never dealt with pride or temptation or had temptations for sexual immorality. Nobody's perfect in this life. But it does mean when you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, there is a conscious, I am turning to the living God. And I cannot worship idols. And I cannot put myself in a place where I think I am close to God. I put myself in a position of humility because I am saying I cannot save myself. I need a Savior. I need the Lord Jesus. Notice then verses 16, 17, and 18. In the past generations, he has allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways. Yet he did not leave himself without witness. For he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, sanctifying your, your hearts with God, uh, excuse me, with food and gladness. Even with these words, they scarcely restrained the people from offering sacrifice to them. What I want you to notice here very quickly is that Paul is telling unbelievers, God has been good to you even though you do not recognize it. Uh, We call this sometimes common grace, meaning there's saving grace where God is gracious and he opens our hearts and saves us. And then there's just the general things in life that are also gifts from God. You plant a garden and God brings the rain. That was a gift from God. Keep in mind, this is in the day and age before Walmart. If your crops don't come up, you go hungry. Paul is saying if the fact that you are not going hungry, the fact that there is food, that there are rain, that you have had a, a glad heart as you feast on this food, is God's general benevolence and goodness to you. You may not recognize Him, but God who made the heavens and the earth upholds it all. Jesus says the same thing in Matthew chapter 5, that God makes the sun to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. He is gracious to sinners even before they're saved. And yet we don't recognize it. And yet we don't recognize it. Paul is also appealing to the fact that everyone all around them has knowledge of God that they are confronted with every day. Scriptures say the heavens declare the glory of God. You walk outside on a sunny day. You walk outside on a rainy day. You walk outside on a starry night. All of it is portraying God's infinite character, His divine nature, His power, His common and general goodness towards every living and breathing thing. And all of us should know that and turn to God is what Paul is saying. Let me make four applications this morning. First, idolatry is the most basic sin of my heart, of the human heart. We like to think, well, you know, that was in the ancient world that they had idols. We have idols in our lives. The most basic temptation in Genesis 3, 5, Satan says to Eve, For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened. You will be like God knowing good and evil. Colossians 3.5 says that greed is idolatry. Anytime we take something, even a gift from God, and we start to make that the most important thing in our life, and we start to give that more priority than God, 
we are walking down a path of making that thing an idol. Anytime that, that I get puffed up and prideful and start taking credit and patting myself on the back and thinking, woohoo, look at me, look how great I am. We are beginning to walk on that path of exalting ourselves rather than humbling ourselves as God would have. Second, when you evangelize, you are calling people to repent and that requires humility to repent. You are calling people to turn away from false gods, from pursuing things of the world. Maybe it's sinful things. Maybe it's pursuing good things in such a way that that, that, that is the only thing they live for. That job, that family, that house. And, and they are having greed which can become idolatry. Whatever it is, Scripture says in Joel 2, rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God and be gracious, for He is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, and He relents in disaster. Pride and the reception of the Gospel go together like oil and water. They don't mix. You can't have one going with the other. Psalm 138.6 For the Lord is high. For though the Lord is high, He regards the lowly. But the haughty, the, the one who is puffed up, prideful, the haughty, it says, He knows from afar. A person cannot be prideful and haughty and approach the living God. God has given, number three, given us so many good things, even to the unbeliever. At the end of the day, the unbeliever takes the gifts that God has given them and in their pride turns them and does not praise God and does not honor God. I wish we had time today to go into Romans 1, but read it sometime on your own and see how the heavens declare the glory of God, the idea of the divine nature being known through what is made. And then it says, claiming to be wise, they became fools. They exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. They, they worship the created thing, whether it's man, whether it's his accomplishments, or whether it's actually making a physical idol rather than worshiping God. Brothers and sisters, when you come to the Lord Jesus Christ, you're repenting of those things. You're going to have to fight pride. You're going to have to learn humility. It is the thing that the Lord calls us to. Do not be swept up in the spirit of the age that, that calls us to make something of ourselves, to, to be somebody, to, to put everyone else down so that you can be the winner and everyone else is the loser. Do not be driven to exalt yourself. Humble yourself and let God exalt you in due time. Lastly, I want to take this back to Jesus Christ. I want you to think about the beauty of the Gospel. The Scriptures say that Jesus has equality with God. He existed before all times in the form of God. He is the image of God, the bearer of divine glory. If anyone had a right to walk among men and have them say, 
This is a God. It was Jesus. If anybody had the right to show up with power and pomp and circumstance and royal clothes and crowns and glory, it was Jesus. What does scripture say? How does Jesus come? It says he emptied himself. That's a a euphemism for saying he made himself nobody. Jesus didn't empty himself like stop being God, but he he emptied himself in, in the same way that I might take off my suit and my, my fancy clothes and, and, and the display of royalty if I were a king. He made himself a nobody, it says, by taking the form of the servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on the cross. Ephesians 2.5 says, have this attitude in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. The world, the kings of Tyre, the rulers of nations say, I'm going to exalt myself. Jesus, the king of kings, says, I'm going to make myself humble. If you profess to follow the Lord Jesus Christ, humble yourself. Do not give in to them those temptations to be prideful. Let's close in a word of prayer. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, Lord, uh, we just thank you for your goodness and your kindness. Lord, we do not deserve these things. We don't deserve to hear this message. We don't have to deserve to have the Holy Spirit living in our hearts. Humility was not natural for us, but is a product of the gift of the Holy Spirit. In our sin, we want to be puffed up. Oh, Lord, continue to work the graces of the gospel inside of us. We just pray that you would touch our hearts and our lives, that we would be loving towards one another, that we would have this attitude which was in Christ Jesus, that we would think more highly of others than we do of ourselves, that we would be willing to sacrifice for others, to to give of what we have, to, to care for those in need, to not stir up fights and dissensions because we have to be right. Lord, we pray that you would work in our hearts, work in this body as your church. In your name we pray. Amen. We're going to come and the guys are going to sing, uh, guys and women.